Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm the host of the program, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. On today's program, we're going to talk about issues that healthcare reform legislation was supposed to address, like making sure everybody has access to care and improving the affordability of medical care in the United States, something that I think there's general agreement the health care bill didn't really fully address. We're going to be speaking today with J.P. Weiske. He's executive director of the Council for Affordable Health Insurance. This is an organization, an association of insurance carriers active in the individual small group health savings account, and senior markets. So this organization includes insurance companies, small businesses, providers, some nonprofit organizations, etc., all of whom are interested in seeing that people have access to affordable health care. JP, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you. Can you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about the Council for Affordable Health Insurance? Sure. Uh, we're an organization. We've been around since uh, since around 1992. We came into existence in in um, based on the threat from what we felt from uh, from Clinton Care at the time. And it's a it's a group that comes at the issue from a policy perspective. We're primarily our members are primarily insurance companies, although we have doctors, lawyers, actuaries. And others who uh, who are members of well as well, including uh, insurance agents. But we're a little bit different because traditionally, when you look at it, you're looking at the interest purely the interest of the insurer and others. But we come at this from a free market perspective, and so we look at the world, I think, a little bit differently than than you know most do because we're focused on how to improve the health insurance and healthcare financing system from a policy perspective primarily, rather than just um, you know, where our skin in the game is. So from that perspective, what are the primary problems we're having today? Well, I think the biggest problem that we've got broadly is identifying what the problem is. <laughs> there you go. I think, I think people miss this consistently. I, mean, I think if you take a look at, uh, at, at the health reform legislation that just recently passed, I think it misses the mark. On, 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 on defining the problem. And, and the unfortunate part is, the reality is, it's not just one problem. The assumption is that we've got a, a large number of uninsured, and the solution to that is, is access to health insurance. Well, yes and no. That's certainly part of the problem, depending on where you are in, in, in this country um, and, and, and other factors. But affordability is equally part of that problem for some. Um, you know whether or not the employer provides coverage or not is is certainly part of the problem. Access to affordable choices in certain states is an issue, 
And, and so if you look at the problem differently and you look at it group by group, um, you can find that the solutions are different for each, each one of these groups. And a one-size-fits-all approach just doesn't tend to work. So if I'm hearing right, the, the two big problems are, one, the people who are uninsured, and two, the cost of insuring people. Yes, and and of course, behind that is is the reason, you know. First off, the reason the people are uninsured. There's a lot of variation there as to as to why they're uninsured. When you actually dig down into the numbers, and the second question, so so you need to figure that out. And the second question is why is the insurance unaffordable? And again, the answers aren't necessarily the same in every state and in, in in every area um, as to as to those two issues. And the health care so, reform legislation, as I understand it, really, they focused on the number of uninsured and getting access. They didn't really even address the question of affordability. Well, and, and there was an assumption, that's right, and, and there was an assumption that the problem with access for, for people was, one, long-term. I think that was, that was one of the assumptions. Uh, it, at least it appears to me the way the legislation was written. And two, that the lack of access had more to do with health status and whether or not an individual was sick um, as to whether or not they could get coverage. And, in fact, uh, those aren't necessarily the case. And if you look at it at most states, we did a study a while ago or a, a paper a while ago on this. If you look at state by state, there are only about five states where if you were already, if you had a serious health condition and you were uninsured, and you weren't coming off of group coverage or, or something else where you'd have some continuing coverage. Um, there are only about five states in that relatively small population where you could not get access to health insurance. Everywhere else, you could get something. Now, there was affordability as a problem as part of that, but, but certainly except in those five states, you know, access wasn't the issue. It, 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 it is affordability, and so you need to turn that question on its head you also need to ask, for those people who are uninsured, why are they uninsured? And, and there's a lot of reasons. Some of them are coming off of, of, of group coverage, would have been eligible for, for HIPAA, uh, which is you know, Health Insurance Portability and, and the Portability Act from uh, 1996, or would have been eligible for COBRA uh, coverage, continuing coverage under their employer, or in some cases state, you know, state continuation coverages. And, and, and those folks aren't buying it. And there may be a lot of reasons, affordability. It's also maybe in part because some of those people can play the kind of waiting game in, in insurance. In other words, you don't have to elect COBRA or some of the other continuations until you're uninsured for 60 days. You can wait 60 days, see if you've had claims, and then you can go back and buy coverage. So they, you know, there's some, some issue with waiting. In other cases, um, about 20, 25% of the uninsured are, in fact, already eligible for existing government programs that aren't signed up for whatever reason. So there's, there's a lot of different reasons that people may be uninsured that don't necessarily have anything to do with, with access. So if somebody were ill with something, you're saying mm-hmm. they can still get insurance in, in, in 45 states. Will, the, will that insurance cover the thing for which they're currently ill? In most cases, yes. I mean, the rules, the rules varied, and it depended on their circumstances. But by and large, the, you know, for the most part, the, the answer was yes. Now, that, you know, we, assuming 
that we've got somebody who's got a, a condition um, who's coming off of coverage, it can continue. If they've been uninsured for years and they're just coming into coverage, it varied state to state. That was one of the that was one of the potential weaknesses that uh, that that needed to be fixed. There were other issues with the existing system, and again, it, it required more minor tweaks than major tweaks. But you know, there are individuals who, um, in in some of the states, the the benefits for what were the existing state high risk pools may have been relatively low. Um, one state had a had a, a maximum coverage of five hundred thousand dollars, and and if you're really seriously ill, that that may not be enough. So, and, if, if this ahead. is true, why, why didn't everybody just wait until they got ill and then buy their insurance? Well, it, it, because the high risk pool system isn't isn't desired, and it's interesting because when you look at the high risk pools, and again, these are people who already have existing um, have an existing medical problem. For some reason, they didn't have access to coverage. And what you find, interestingly, is by and large that uh, over time they eventually move into the, the standard insurance system, either because, and I think this is rare, because they, they become healthier, but I think more likely because the, the high-risk pools are a temporary solution and eventually they, uh, they move into other group coverage, is, is it, um, are, are a lot of them just going off. broke and, and ending up on Medicare or Medicaid? I, I don't think there's from the data that I've seen, and and I have you know I've only seen data really directly studying this from the state of Wisconsin. Most most states are not studying it, but you know once you're into the high risk pool, um, your your numbers are limited. Uh, yeah, I mean your your premiums are are expensive. They aren't cheap. Although a number of states have subsidies for people who are both poor and uninsured, um, the other piece of it is is that um, in most cases they they don't max out their benefits in 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 the high risk pool. But that's a that's a rare rare um, occurrence. I haven't heard of any specific instances. I'm sure there are some, but I think that's a that's a rare circumstance. And in those cases, they would then become poor enough to be eligible for for Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid coverage. All right. Well, I'm going to come back to affordability in a minute, but this sure. this hodgepodge uh, nationally of different programs and different settings is really mind-boggling. Wouldn't it have been easier if they just set up one insurance system for everybody? It, in in theory, um, perhaps in practice, you've got such a large um, a large country um, that it, you know what you need. System-wise, in North Dakota, primarily rural state, rural state or, or Montana, really, really a rural state, in New York, uh, and especially if you're looking at New York City, are, are vastly different. Um, the income limitations, all the, all, you know, all those sorts of things are, are very different. And what you find, I mean, interestingly, if you take a look at a lot of countries who have set, set up kind of a, a single-payer system, is the sorts of disparities that we've been concerned with um, from an income standpoint are the same disparities that exist later on down the road. I mean, if, if we're being brutally honest about this, um, if you're a politician, are you going to put the new hospital, the new government-run hospital, in an area that is, is relatively affluent in votes, or are you going to put it in an area that is relatively not affluent and doesn't vote? I mean, that's, that's essentially what the problem comes down to, is, is when you move into that realm, you end up with a, with a system where... 
the political rewards make those determinations and and um, you know allocate it, and you you lose the the issues of of innovation, and you lose consumer choice. And there's a lot of really subtle. I mean, it's the same thing in Medicare. There's a lot of really subtle uh, kind of gag clauses. And w- what I mean by that is, you know, doctors are certainly responsible in in talking about what treatment options there are. But in in a number of these cases, you can certainly see that if if something is not covered under under Medicare, if it's not covered and it's a relatively poor patient, um, you're not going to find, and, and, and especially more so in the the, the, the larger um, state state run systems, you're not going to see them talking about the sorts of things that are that are expensive and and, and not going to be covered anywhere. So it becomes a really subtle sort of system shift that happens over time. You know, that that was going to bring me to my next question, which is the two major problems we identified were, one, the number of uninsured and then affordability. And I was going to ask you, from the perspective of your organization and the people it represents, let's focus – can we focus just on what you would have liked to have seen done to address access issues, to address the issue of the number of uninsured separately from affordability? But my – but but also I'm asking, can you can you make that separation, or, or are these things linked? Uh, you can make some separation. I mean, there there is a link uh, when you're looking at the whole system, but but you can do certain things to to tweak pieces of the system. In other words, clearly, you know, we were talking about the the fact that you know 45 states have have high had high risk pools or or some some other uh, option for people who are who are uninsured and sick. Um, Certainly, we would have supported federal money to put into those existing state state high risk pools, which, by the way, have much more robust enrollment than we're seeing so far in the federal high risk pools uh, that have been set up. And putting that money into that to that state approach um, instead would have um, increased access um, and would have lowered costs in the state and would have been uh, plans that 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 you know were, were better designed for the state. In addition, there could have been, as part of the, that approach, you certainly could have, um, you know, expanded and and made better definitionally what those high risk pools had to do, as far as what their their maximum benefits were, um, if there is a maximum, um, how they're funded. Uh, certainly, you know, we have supported traditionally that, that insurance companies are part of that process and are part of paying for those high risk pools, as they do in most of the states which is not part of these, these federal high-risk pools. Um, so certainly could have done that. And you also would have, would have limited the, the issue of the, the kind of limited pricing that we're expecting to see over time in these high-risk pools. Typically, the high-risk pools in the states, as they existed prior to reform, uh, paid doctors based on um, you know, some fee schedule based on a contract, be it through the Blue Cross plan if they were administering it or, or other fee schedule. We're hearing that a number of these state high-risk pools are paying Medicare rates, which are substantially lower. Um, and that's going to that's gonna create access issues for those people down the road. So you certainly could have focused on that piece of the issue. The other piece of the issue, if you're talking about access, is take a look at, at, at COBRA and, and state continuation and those sort of programs um, that exist that are, that are private currently and see why people are, are jumping off or not signing up for that coverage. If it's an expense, that you certainly could have uh, increased access by continuing the sort of subsidies that they started 
early on that have now run out for, for that state continuation. In addition, it, it seems fundamentally unfair that if you if you're an employer and you purchase health insurance for your employees, the employees actually get that that uh, deducted as an income. It's not counted as income uh, for the employees, but if you're an individual, you don't get that same sort of tax deduction. Mm-hmm. And so again, when when you make it more attractive, that certainly makes it easier for for folks to buy, and will then increase access. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on WebTalkRadio.net. We're speaking today with J.P. Weiske. He's Executive Director of the Council for Affordable Health Insurance. All right. Well, let's get down to the real heart of the matter, the affordability question. What should have been done or what should be done to improve the affordability of health care in the United States? Well, look, the the only consistent cost, there's only kind of two ways you can kind of control the costs, Right. And that is you can either restrict, um, at least in theory, restrict the supply or, um, you know, force, force uh, doctors to accept lower rates. Though neither of those alternatives are acceptable. And, and so how do you get the supply, the use of health care to be done on a more, in a more prudent way without dictating how you get there? And, and we've been convinced for a long time, and the data continues to, to show this, that, that consumer-driven health care um, is much more successful at this than, 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 general, um, you know, than, than general management. Consumer-driven health make much better decisions. What, what, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that specifically is, is when consumers have, more, have some of their money at risk in the game, that they're, they're required, in fact, to pay for some of the expenses up front. If you look back at uh, the, the Medicare actuarial reports from the 1960s and you look forward to now, it's interesting what you find in, in, when you look at, at private health care and the percentage of what people actually pay of their own health care. Back in the 1960s, um, in fact, consumers paid far more as a percentage of total health care spending for their, for their spending. When you get into the late 1970s, it, it moves to about equal as far as cost goes. In other words, a split between what consumers spent and what insurance companies spent on, on paying for health care, for private health care, were roughly about equal. When you get to now, you're looking at a total switch where comp- insurance companies are paying two to three to one as far as costs, um, you know, as to what consumers pay. I think and we have to be very careful with, We have to be very careful ahead. with the language we use here because mm-hmm. I think the consumer is paying for all of it. No matter what system you do, it, now they may be paying for it directly, or they may be paying for it indirectly through an insurer. But ultimately, the consumer's got to be paying for this. You're exactly you're exactly right. And and what's interesting is if you pull um, quotes, um, especially for older individuals. I mean, there's a, there's a sense that older individuals lose out. When you're looking at, at, at these uh, at, at, at consumer-driven plans, where they're paying more upfront for their own costs, you can actually find in a lot of cases, and people just don't look at these numbers, that the premium reductions, especially in the individual market, um, from going with a higher deductible plan, can in fact fund the entire deductible. And and you know people forget that if you can fund the entire deductible and get coverage at 100 um, percent. You know, you're really out nothing in your pocket relatively. 
And the reality is, if, if you have a low deductible plan and you get health care, and we assume that, that insurance companies are paying for some percentage of that, they're inevitably going to have administrative costs attached to it. I mean, that's, that's part of, 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 of anything. And so you're paying for that $100 that you're not paying a deductible. You're, in fact, probably paying you know, $110, $120 in additional costs for the insurance company. Let's make sure we understand how this works. Um, say I have uh, my, my cholesterol is high. And I'm, I'm, I'm in the office with the doctor, and I have several choices for how to treat this. You know, I could change my diet and exercise routine, and that might be good for me. Maybe give up smoking if I was smoking to lower my risk of whatever the cholesterol would do to my heart. Or I could take some generic low-cost pill for the cholesterol. I might get it down. Or the doctor might tell me, hey, you know, there's this brand-new drug it's the bee's knees. It works a little bit better than anything else that we have, but it costs a thousand times as much as that generic pill. Mm-hmm. If, if the insurance company is paying for everything and I don't have any of my money at stake, I'm going to take that thousand-fold higher-cost drug. That's exactly right. But if, if, if I have a high-deductible health plan... I might never have gone to the doctor in the first place. I might have started with diet and exercise and, and if, you know, or go to the doctor and get the generic pill. And, and it's interesting, too, if you, if you, again, if you look at the data, the most recent data, when you're looking at, at, at those sort of consumer-driven plans, health savings accounts, um, you actually find that we've actually found that um, preventive care has, has, you know, now that we've got a few years of data, is, is actually used much more widely in in these consumer-driven products than it is generally for exactly the reason you're talking about, is they're responsible. They know that the money's coming out of their pocket. Otherwise, they're going to have to refund, the, they're going to have to fund their own deductible or some portion of it, depending on, on if the employer does, um, you know, in order to cover those costs. So what do they do? They, they use the preventive care, and then they, they try it with the diet and exercise first, um, you know, before they move forward with, with, with taking the pill. So, you know, it, I think it is a, it's a success story. You know, it, it and, is so logical that, I mean, that, that that's where the, the, the money savings is going to have to come from. Um, but, I, but, but I guess one wrinkle is do we have to worry that people will not even go to the doctor to get their blood pressure checked or to get their cholesterol checked and, and, and put off even that first visit to avoid paying um, – for um, you know any of those first dollar amounts from their before they their insurance kicks in. Well, the good news is, from a design standpoint, most of the health savings accounts um, surveyed through Ye Health and, and and other entities actually have preventive care as part of their first dollar benefit. So that's actually provided without without being subject to the deductible and the coinsurance. That makes so much so, sense. I mean, if the insurer knows that they're going to save money with particular tests. Give those to the patient. Why not? Exactly, exactly, and 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 so patients have a have a better idea of where their health actually stands. They tend to do this on a on a more regular basis than they do otherwise. Because you know, let's be honest. You know, scheduling a doctor visit can be um, even with the friendliest doctor can be you know a hassle. You have to take time off work, et cetera, et cetera. But if it's going to be covered by your insurance company as part of the benefit. And it, and it prevents some costs down the road. 
um, it's certainly something that, that they might be interested in. JP, I, I get the sense that the bottom line here is that somebody has to pay for health care. And if the third party pays for it, the patient has no incentive to conserve, no incentive to worry about the cost. The doctor certainly wants to give the patient the best possible medical care. The costs skyrocket like crazy. Another possibility is that the insurer or the government say, well, we can't have that. We're going to ration the care and we're going to decide what we pay and, you know, live with it. Or the third possibility is that, as you're saying, put the consumer involved give them some stake in this, and they'll make wise decisions for themselves, which may vary from person to person depending on their own personal needs and desires. That's exactly right. And, and I think the other beauty of the system is, is if you've got somebody who has a really serious medical condition, in, in, you know, an acute medical condition over a course of time or even a chronic medical condition, um, that they're, they're financially protected. And that's what the most important piece of this is, is to make sure that for those big things, people are financially protected. And it's the small stuff that are really the cost drivers that, that consumers can actually control. So, so, so why aren't we all on a high deductible plan now? <laughs> well, there's a lot of reasons, and uh, we're moving that direction. And, and it's interesting that as time has moved on, the, the numbers have doubled. I believe the last, uh, the last numbers I saw is there may be up to 17% of consumers on, on what's defined as consumer-driven uh, consumer driven plans. That number is growing. The acceptance, if you think it back to, you know, it's akin to a 401K, the 401K retirement plans. It took a while for businesses to move from their pension plans to 401K and to finally accept that sort of approach. And, of course, there's, you know, there have been some hiccups, but it took them a while to, to, to get there where, where people can control their own money. It's going to take some time for us to get there here, but this March is moving on whether, you know, whether, you know, the, the federal bill, you know, regardless of what the federal does, bill does, the March is clear, and, and it's clear that we're moving this direction. I just wonder if instead of that 2,000-page bill, which I'm sure has its good and bad aspects to it, if they had just said, okay, you know, the first thing we're going to do is take Medicaid and make it a high-deductible plan. We'll give people, you know, the deductible to put in an account. We'll give them that money up front. We're going to save big time on the other side. And that will inject some free market capitalism into the doctor-patient relationship Doctors who choose to charge less are going to see more patients. Drug companies that choose to charge less for their drugs will, you know, see more patients choosing their product. It seems like the well, federal government had the potential to move people from Medicare or Medicaid into this very quickly and change the whole dynamic of our health system. Yeah, and, and we've seen, in fact, uh, in Indiana, uh, the approach similar to what you're talking about in, in a couple of other states um, on, on Medicaid, but especially the Healthy Indiana Plan. There were a lot of naysayers about that sort of approach. Um, in fact, the, the Healthy Indiana was for, for low-income but not quite Medicaid patients, and they required some premium in order to participate in the plan. They have a, an account up front, uh, what they call their power account, and then they move into, um, move into some deductibles and coinsurances after that. And uh, the program was a resounding success. They actually had to uh, cut people off because they didn't have the user tobacco money and they didn't have enough uh, tobacco and a tobacco tax 
to continue um, expanding it, but it filled up despite the fact that there were some costs attached to it. Far more successful for Medicaid. It's a voluntary program, and yet you, you had to start turning people away. So I think you've got it exactly right that, that it's an approach that has shown great success. And I think it's, it's the, other, the other piece of, uh, of this issue is Medicaid and Medicaid patients want to be able to have their own choices as well. This is the soft bigotry of low expectations. Um, you know, providing those sort of accounts um, allows those people to make those decisions. And unfortunately, a lot of bureaucrats don't believe that that, that population can make those decisions on their own. The, the people your organization re- represents, largely insurers, are okay with the idea of, of increasing high-deductible plans? They are, and, and this is despite the fact that, um, that, that they, as a percentage, will make less money on those plans. And this is part of the resistance from some of the insurance companies um, that you see, some of the larger insurance companies and some of the, the, the bigger market-dominating plans in, in the states. Because high-deductible plans, you just don't make as much money on those plans. The administrative costs are relatively high compared to, to other plans because your, your premiums are very, very low. But, you know, they also understand that that market is, is substantially more predictable. Um, when you're only covering the, the more expensive care, you don't tend to see the wild swings in, in care that, that people get. It's a lot more consistent. So the smaller companies especially like that sort of approach in, in part because it's, it's good for their, their uh, predictability of their bottom line, and it's good for the patients. JP, um, in our closing minute or so here, do you have any, any other um, thoughts you want to share with our audience about how they can have better health or a better health care system? I think um, I think spending some time in studying any issue is is vital. We have a lot of information on our website at khi.org. Other organizations do as well. Um, but I think what what we need to understand that politicians tend to do is they tend to dem- demagogue the issues, and uh, it's important to understand what the real question should be. So they should be spending some time to understanding what the real question is and what the real problems are, rather than what politicians tell you they are. JP, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. There are a lot of people who honestly want there to be affordable health care for all Americans. Having that desire is certainly not the problem. The question is how do we get there? Coming up with a system where people don't take any responsibility, where the government or you know, they expect private employers to just come up and pay for all possible medical care no matter what the cost – Seems like a recipe for disaster. I mean, in theory, in some theory, if you forget part of what actually happens, uh, it would be nice. But is it practical and feasible? I don't think so. What are the alternatives? I think it's time to start thinking about the other possibilities. And as JP from the Council for Affordable Health Insurance points out, giving patients some responsibility for the cost of the health care provides a free market way of controlling the cost of care that I think is ultimately going to be essential because either we control the cost of care or we don't. If we don't control the cost of care, we have a problem. If we do control the cost of care, if we rely on government or insurers or regulators to control the cost, it's going to feel like rationing and that's going to be less than ideal. The alternative is putting the power to control the cost of care into the hands of the people who use the care 
And I think ultimately that's where we're going to have to go. On the other hand, society might decide, hey, we want affordable health care for everybody, and we're willing to, to have a system where we trust our government or we trust the insurers to decide what care uh, is really right and how much to pay for it. And if we go that way, that's fine, but we have to recognize, you know, that's one of the choices. Well, we'll see how healthcare develops. It gives us plenty more material for future shows. Listen, I very much appreciate the time you spend with me today, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until we speak again, have the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.